hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. This is Rumble Strip. I'm Erica Heilman. If you called me up and said, um, your best friend just died, I would find myself standing in front of the refrigerator just staring into it, looking for something to eat. If you called me up and said, you just want a Pulitzer Prize, the same thing would happen. That's Bill Schubart. He's a writer, a cultural and political commentator. He has chaired a lot of important boards here in Vermont. He's really smart, and he talks a lot, and a lot of people listen. What he talks less about is that he has struggled with being fat his entire life. It's not necessarily that he's averse to talking about it. In fact, he wrote a brilliant collection of stories called Fat People in 2010. His weight has been a central and consequential and painful fact of his life, but it doesn't come up in conversation. The F word. In this show, we talk about it. Here's Bill Schubart. It was a hot summer day in Morrisville. The neighborhood kids and I were running through the sprinkler and... And I had a bathing suit on, and it became time to come in. And my mother's mother was sitting on the couch, and she was a source of terror to all of us. She was a very dark woman, extremely critical, and she was sitting on the couch reading, and I went trotting by in my bathing suit. And she said, come here. And I I stopped, and I walked over to her, and she looked at me from head to toe like this, and she said, you look like a hermaphrodite, and turned back into her book. I had no idea what a hermaphrodite was, so I took out my, my little dictionary, and I looked it up, and burst into tears. The real moment of something's gone wrong, somehow I'm different, was that moment with my mother's mother. And from that moment on, I always wore a shirt or a t-shirt. So my mother had, my mother was obese, had an alcohol problem and a pharmaceutical drug problem. But my overeating was very tied to my mother's overeating. She spent a lot of time in bed, and she would say, why don't you go make us some sandwiches, and we'll, we'll have them together. And um, I would do that, and I'd bring them in, and we'd lie there together, and that felt so warm that I began to connect maternal love with eating. Was there something in her delivery to you about, or her, in her, um, was she asking you to be complicit in a way? Did you feel that? Not at all. I didn't sense any agenda. I sensed an opportunity to be close to my mother on her terms. That was it. It's warm. I'm close to my mother. She cares for me. We're doing something we both think is fun. And that was it. Um... She had, I don't know if you remember them, but she had one of these metal toll lamps on the side of her bed, and they have a steel shade, and it was one of the first lamps that had low, medium, and high light positions. 
the top of the shade was the exact diameter of the small saucepan. So we'd come in sometimes and we'd find this little saucepan sitting on the top of her lamp and the lamp would be on low, medium, or high and there'd be some Campbell's tomato soup bubbling away on the top of this lamp. Everybody was required to participate in phys ed. You had to wear shorts, and you had to wear a t-shirt, and that was some salvation, but I was also very always heavy up here, you know, so if I ran, it would, you know, I would sort of have this chest jiggling thing, which I was became acutely aware of. Then, you know, we'd have to go in afterwards and shower. And when there would be pickup teams to play softball or, you know, shoot hoops, and people would do the thing to, you know, see who gets to draw first, I would always be the little fat kid standing on the side. And somebody, if they were sweet and generous, would say, okay, Bill, come on with us. Or if they weren't, they'd go, well, I guess we get the fat guy. Then we get a call from my grandmother saying, well, Bill should go to Exeter. She was worried that I was just going to be raised. Her, her, her one son had died and that I would be raised in Vermont and get no education. So I apply to and get into Exeter. And I get in and they took nude photos of everybody coming in. They were called posture pictures, but they were tied to the eugenics movement. The word was they were checking for scoliosis. So we had to line up in the infirmary, stark naked, when we first got there, and be called one at a time to come in, stand in front of a view camera, and be photographed front on and sideways. And then we were excused. And I was never so terrified or humiliated in my life. I was standing among maybe 15 other boys who were thin. Anyway, I went, I went back to the dorm in terror because I could see other people looking at me, you know. And shortly after the nude photographs, I was called in by Dr. Hyde, who was the doctor, into the infirmary. And he said, you're massively overweight. And I need you to know that if you don't solve this, you will not live a day past 50. You will be dead when you're 50. I mean, at, at this point, you know, I, I'm trying to figure out, am I a broken person? Am I a sinner? I don't know what I am. I, all I know is that I'm fat. And when I went to Exeter, there was only one other fat person there. One. You know, I mean, of, of some four or five hundred kids, there were two of us who were obese. When you were at Exeter and you would go to these meals, what is the emotional experience of eating, eating, eating? I mean, you're, you're in a public place. I would be incredibly self-conscious. So I would go through the, um, the cafeteria line. Everything in me wanted to create a mound of food 
and take it back, but I would be taking it back to a table with seven other students sitting there who would stare at me and stare at my plate. So I would take a modest amount, and then I might go back in for seconds, but again, modest, because I was being watched. Every Sunday night, the Exeter Inn, which was part of the academy and where parents stayed, had an all-you-can-eat buffet. And I would have supper in the cafeteria, Then I would sneak out with a coat and tie on and go to the Exeter Inn by myself, which was just a few blocks down the road, and I would pay my $3, and I would go through the buffet line several times, and in the inside pockets of my sport coat, I had the plastic liners from LPs tucked in there, and I would walk through and I'd fill my plate And I'd go back and I'd eat everything on the plate except the lobster tails and the roast beef. And I would stuff that into the plastic thing. So when I came back to the dorm, I had these bulging pockets filled with lobster tails and roast beef. And, you know, that's what I did. How much of your everyday, all-day reality was filtered through this fact about yourself. All of it. When I, when I made the decision that I was going to go to this place that dealt with compulsive eating and alcohol and drugs in Florida, they had to have an official weight for me. And there's not a scale made that could weigh me. And I didn't know whether I weighed 350 pounds or 500 pounds. I had no idea. I just knew I was immense. At that point, I was 38. It was out of control. I was so huge. I couldn't buy clothes. I couldn't sit in chairs. I couldn't do anything. So I called a friend of mine. I said, I know this is going to sound funny, but you work at Agway. I need to weigh myself because they won't let me in unless I know my weight. And I said, can I just kind of do this privately? And he went, yeah, sure. So I go down there, and there's like eight people in the back room where the grain stored in bags. And I climb on to one of those wonderful ancient old Fairbanks-Morse platform scales. And I get on it, and the thing goes, bump. And they start moving the, the weights to the right, you know, like this. And everybody's going, whoa, whoa. Oh, finally, uh, my friend Dud looks up and he goes, pretty impressive, 492. So I notified the facility of what I weighed and they went, okay. Then I, I flew. Flying was terrifying to me. That I'm making someone else uncomfortable. In all the times I've flown around this country, As an obese person, I've had the full range of experience from being, how could you be so big? You are making me profoundly uncomfortable. Or even having somebody raise their hand and have the stewardess come and say, this man is too fat to be in this plane. Can you get me another seat? Full throat. To somebody being kind 
and saying, hey, why don't we lift up this thing? Maybe you'll be a little more comfortable. And letting me spill into their seat by an inch or two. But every time I board a plane, I live in mortal fear. Who is going to be the person next to me? Are they going to shame me and embarrass me? Or are they going to be understanding and caring? And, or are they going to just ignore me, which is the best? There, there have been cabin stewards who have been very kind and said, Oh, sir, you look very uncomfortable in this seat. I've got a couple of open seats up front. Would you like to come up and have one of those? And I would just, my heart would swell. This, this person understands me. So I went down there, and through no fault of my own, I got assigned to one of the seats in the way back next to the restroom where there's no liftable things. There are fixed dividers in the seats, so I can't fit in there. I tried to do it sideways, couldn't do it. So I end up sitting on top of it with my seatbelt extender and another one that the, the uh, stewardess brought. So I get, I get to the treatment facility, and I'm a little stunned. I knew it wasn't a fancy spa. It's kind of seedy looking, and so I, I'm assigned a, a hospital room with another person. And after a couple of weeks, things are starting to make sense. We're having three meals a day and what was called a metabolic snack before we went to bed to kind of tide us over, which would usually be a piece of fruit or maybe some yogurt with no sugar. But the rationale there was is that you're not just a compulsive eater. You are addicted to refined carbohydrates. And the model for treating addiction, the only one that's really worked is abstinence. You can't recover from heroin addiction by moderating your use of heroin. You can't recover from alcohol addiction by moderating your use of alcohol. And you can't recover from compulsive eating or an eating addiction without abstinence. And you can't live abstaining from food. So rather than go on a diet You're just going to change how you relate to food and how you eat food. And you're going to have no sugar, flour, or wheat because that's the addictive element. So all of a sudden, I had a model that worked. And just as when you abstain from heroin or you abstain from alcohol, the compulsion to consume both after two, three, four weeks starts to ebb. And that's what happened with me with food. I got to the point where the idea of eating refined carbohydrates... I didn't want it. That was alleviated. And I could eat three healthy meals a day. Was treatment the first time you had been among that many people who were obese? Yes. And what was that like? Instead of being the end of the spectrum, I was part of the spectrum. When I think about my body, it's very objective and it's very, it's very strained. Mm-hmm. I don't feel at peace ever. Do you ever have moments of deep comfort in your body? 
I have to cultivate them. They're not natural. They don't occur naturally. And the way I cultivate them is essentially by going through all the things that I have to be grateful for physically. One of which is having had the experience of compulsive eating, having had the experience of recovering to a degree. You never fully recover. Another is that I'm 75 and didn't die when I was 50. Another is that even at my current weight of 282 pounds, I can go out and work for three or four hours in the woods at 75. But but I mean a visceral pleasure in your body. Are there ever moments when you love, you like, you like it? No. It's when I'm physically working, yes. If I look at my body, I see layers of fat. And it's, it's painful and it's unattractive. Whereas if I've been working outdoors for several hours and I go, whoa, that aches. That's solid muscle. That's a part of my body that feels good. But it's different from this part. They're not integrated. They're, it's like a Christmas tree with good ornaments and bad ornaments. In, in a work circumstance, you walk into a meeting, a board meeting. What, what is the presence of your weight in that circumstance? When I walk in as board chair of some institution, I'm coming in as a respected member of the governance team. That's the definition that I'm trying to project. Now, there may be 10 trustees sitting around a table, and everyone may look at me differently. One person might say, my God, that man's huge. Another person might say, oh, you know, he's doing a pretty good job as chair. It's, you know, nice to be here. I'm aware of the fact that I'm creating a diversity of reaction, but I don't know what it is, and I, I just focus on being who I am, which at that point is not a fat person. It's the chair of the board. I pretty much accept who I am. I think that the most painful element is the relationship between sex and obesity, the understanding that nobody is going to want to have sex with a fat person. That was really a dominant thing throughout my life. It was more of an assumption than a reality. I mean, obviously, I was having sex at different weights. It's, it's an assumption. And it's probably based on the assumption of if I was, and this is again imaginary, if I was a thin person and there were five women in front of me and one of them was obese, I would not pick her as somebody I would want to have as a date. And my assumption was is that the inverse was absolutely true too. I don't think any of us, regardless of our addictions or lack of addictions, ever gets to any place of peace until we really get to that place of acceptance, accepting ourselves. When Kate and I were out spending the night at her mother's house and I had to go into New York on business and I hopped on you know a commuter train from Greenwich into uh, into Manhattan and um, I'm, I'm sitting on the train and I'm I'm fat but not as huge as I had been 
a very large girl gets on the train and comes and sits down across from me. It's one of those face-to-face -face seats. And she's very fat, and her clothes don't fit. I mean, there's actually flesh, you know, you could see. And she's got a bag with a blueberry muffin in it. And she's very self-conscious because she's eating in public. And she's taking tiny little bites and nibbling. Like, I'm not a compulsive eater. Because a compulsive eater would inhale that muffin in four bites. She's eating these little thing piecemeals. And I'm thinking, boy, that would be me. Um, she keeps pulling her shirt down, you know, to cover her. Because her clothes are way too tight. And her blue jeans are way too tight. Finally, she puts the muffin down on the seat next to her. And she sort of looks out the window a little bit. She never looks at me. Then she tries to get in her pants pocket. She's reaching like this, struggling. And she finally pulls out a cell phone. And she puts it up to her ear. And she says, oh, hi. Oh, God, it's so good to hear your voice. Oh, I can't wait to see you. You know, I'll be in the city in another 45 minutes. And then she finally hangs up and tries to get the phone back in her pants, which is very hard for her to do. Then she sort of stares at me for a little bit. And I'm like, you know, I try to engage her in conversation. How you doing? She said, oh, I'm fine. I'm going to see my, my boyfriend in New York. I said, well, that's, that's wonderful. And she says, you know, do you have someone? I say, yeah, I do. And I say a little bit about Kate's and my relationship. And then we get into Grand Central, you know, all the lights and the flashing and so on and so forth. And we get in there and she's looking so sad. And um, finally the doors open and I get up and I said, are you okay? And she looks at me and she said, you knew, didn't you? And I said, I knew what? She said, there was no one on the phone. And she walked off the train. She had done this small bit of theater telling a complete stranger on a train that she's lovable. And I never forgot that. Bill Schubart. There's a link to his book, Fat People, on my website, which I highly recommend. It's excellent. If you have a comment, I would love to hear from you. Just go to the website, which is rumblestripvermont.com, and go to the show page, and at the bottom of that page, there's a comment box. If you have a minute to make a comment on Apple Podcasts, that's also great. That helps new listeners find the show. The music for this show is by my friend Brian Clark in Callis, Vermont. Rumblestrip is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of excellent independent podcasts around the country. One of the shows is called The Constant, which is kind of science and history lesson in getting things wrong from ancient times to today. It's really smart, and you can find a link to it and all the Hub & Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. This is Rumblestrip, America Heilman. Thanks a lot for listening.